Você está brincando comigo, everyone, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. Uh, that, by the way, is Portuguese for Are You Kidding Me? A phrase I actually wrote in my race notes uh, for <laughs> in regards to this this Grand Prix. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, uh, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Not too bad. Still trying to get my head around what happened in Brazil. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, not with us, Danny O'Dwyer, uh, who's on assignment this week. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, welcome. Uh, if you're new to Formula One in general, we recommend listening to our preseason primer episode, which assumes no prior F1 knowledge and gives the lowdown on how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you want to uh, look back at that one, it's episode 59. Also, this show is supported entirely by our audience at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release at least one bonus podcast uh, episode and bonus video exclusively for our patrons, um, covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, primers for other racing series and a lot of weird things. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shift F1 or click the link uh, in the show notes. This month, uh, next week, in fact, we will be recording our preseason primer for uh formula e which kicks off this weekend uh, we will get to that later but um we're we're letting two uh of the opening rounds go by before we um see how this new season works and uh run down uh everyone involved and in, in how formula e works it's a really fun <laughs> series one of our favorites uh, and so we're going to be doing a patreon uh exclusive episode where we uh, explain how that thing goes uh it's another it's a it, one other cool thing about it is that it's on youtube so it's a it's a free racing series that you can follow so we will have that up for uh patrons later this month today however we will be discussing the brazilian grand prix oh my god rob i'm looking down this document that <laughs> that i wrote here and it's a lot yeah i, I think um I kept thinking the race was about to settle down. There were like at least three distinct phases where I was like, okay, this is probably the shape of the race for the rest of this thing. And mm -hmm. then literally like five minutes after I had that thought, every time all hell broke loose and the race completely flipped. Uh, but I think you knew something was up in qualifying because there was a lot of dynamism toward the front of the field. Right. Like the only person I would say who really just seemed to be kicking ass the entire uh, qualifying session was Verstappen. But it wasn't like a clear it wasn't clear that Red Bull like had a dominant car. It was just Verstappen seemed dialed in. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think throughout practice, um, it sort of seemed like maybe it was going to be Mercedes, but they also seem to be having a little trouble maybe with the altitude that this track is at. Um, practice one and two were also really wet. Kubica and Albon both crashed. Uh, Gasly had an engine problem in practice two. I think Kvyat also did. Um, practice three and qualifying, though, were much drier. Also, I should mention uh, Charlotte Claire. For Ferrari will be taking a 10 place grid spot penalty uh, for power unit changes heading into this weekend. So uh, wherever he qualifies, he's going to be knocked down uh, 10 spots. But yeah, right out of the gate, though, weirdness in qualifying signs with an engine problem didn't even set a time. Uh, the team said later it was caused by an ignition wiring issue. Uh, he took the opportunity to get a, an entirely new power unit and uh, will start the race from the back um interestingly well this is interesting to me i don't know <laughs> if it will be to other people but uh he's not starting from the pit lane because according to 
uh, uh, an article from Autosport. He's fitting the same power unit components of the same specification. So he's not upgrading. He's just changing out the same spec. So he does not have to start from the pit lane. He just has to start from the back. Um, Q2, also a little weird. Giovinazzi went off during everybody's final runs, which botched a number of laps. Um, But... Like you said, Rob, Q3, Verstappen went fastest in the first stint, uh, improved on the second, and ultimately nobody could even touch him. Yeah, I knew that everyone was in trouble when he got the, he, he sort of nipped P1 uh, on the first fast lap. Uh, they all set. He, he got it by eight thousandths of a, uh, of a second. And then on the replay, that was with him botching uh, a corner pretty badly. That's right. And yeah. so for him to still have the pole time at that point, uh, when he clearly left time on the table, you knew it was going to be real tough for anyone to bring the fight back to him. Yeah. And um, we know Verstappen is good here. Uh, he had sort of his uh, uh, his his breakout hit um, as a driver, at least from my perspective, in 2016, when he came from way back in the field in the rain to get second place, I think. Um, but interestingly, he before today has never qualified in the top three at Interlagos, uh, but he got pole position today ahead of Sebastian Vettel in second and Lewis Hamilton in third. Behind them, Valtteri Bottas starts fourth, Alex Albon fifth, Pierre Gasly starts sixth, uh, and we got Roman Grosjean, Kimi Raikkonen, and Kevin Magnussen in seven, eight, nine, both Haases uh, in the top ten to start. Lando Norris starting in tenth. Behind him, Ricardo, Giovinazzi, Hulkenberg, Leclerc after his penalty, uh, and Perez in 15th place. Then we've got Kvyat, Stroll, Russell, Kubica, and Sainz with uh, uh, having not started or uh, set a time in qualifying. Okay. I've got start notes here, Rob, uh, unless yeah. you want to take it. Uh, no, mine are pretty mine are pretty spotty. There was a lot happening. Um, yeah, but so... Take it away. Um, Verstappen takes off uh, immediately and covers the inside from Vettel. The first turn is to the left. Um, Hamilton, though, swings to the outside of Vettel for that left-handed turn one and absolutely nails it. Like, he... I I am... The more I learn about Formula One and how hard it is to to start one of these cars, and uh, especially on cold tires, to be able to do that on the outside of a turn uh, and get around Sebastian Vettel... And make it look easy was was very impressive, but he he does that and immediately uh, takes second place from Vettel. A little further back, there's a great battle going on between Leclerc, Ricardo, and Norris. So Leclerc good. gets by Ricardo on the inside, and then pulls up next to Norris for a move around the outside of the next corner. Norris though uh, holds his own and keeps it through that corner. Although unfortunately for him, the Ferrari has more horsepower on the straight. Uh, and Leclerc gets by as they cross the line for lap two. Ricardo then follows Leclerc's coattails and slots in behind him, but Norris isn't done. He gets Ricardo back on the S's and defends from his counterattack on the ensuing straight, making Ricardo dip onto the grass a little bit, which was nerve-wracking. Uh, just fantastic racing from all three of those guys. It was... There were a couple things. Uh, watching Leclerc do that was so much fun. And I yeah, I know that the cars aren't equal, but there's something really entertaining about watching a really good driver in a really good car just trying to tear through the field uh, early in the race when there's still a lot of position and uh, time to be time to be won. 
Uh, and then the other thing is Norris was really impressive there as he, as he often is. Um, I couldn't remember. Is he typically that sharp elbowed? Is he typically that aggressive with cutting off lines or does Daniel Ricardo get a slightly special treatment these days? Is Daniel Ricardo being treated like a guy who might come like you just have to assume he is going to try to come bombing down the inside and he's someone you have to bully a little bit because um, it was it was a pretty aggressive move. Uh, it was a good mm-hmm. move, but I was trying to think, have I seen Norris do this a lot this year? Um, and I couldn't I couldn't really recall, but I do feel like I've seen Ricardo getting that treatment. And when he hasn't, when he has left that little crack of daylight uh, into the inside line toward an apex, the odds of something weird or untoward happening seem much higher. <laughs> I think it's a good point. I, I think it's maybe two things. I think it's Norris feeling a little more comfortable in the car. I remember him starting out the season saying, like, I'm not going to take a lot of risks. Uh, I just want to get through my first season in Formula One uh, intact, um, you know, without screwing up too much. <clears throat> and then also, I think, and I have no evidence for this, but I, I'll bet I'll bet people feel like they can boss uh, the Renaults around a little bit because the car is just not that good. Yeah, that uh, is that is the unfortunate thing, is that was clearly a... You think about how close those cars were at the start of the season... Um, and now it's pretty clear that, yeah, you can, you can push Renaults around, uh, in a way that you probably couldn't a year ago. Yeah. Uh, so after all that, it ends up with Leclerc in 11th place, Norris in 12th and Ricardo in 13th. Uh, Ricardo's woes continue though on lap eight. Um, having lost a few more positions, he comes up on Magnuson and tries his patented late breaking move, uh, intending to shoot up the inside and barge his way through as he normally does. Uh, maybe this is back to what you were talking about, Rob, people learning Ricardo's ways. He has just the slightest wobble in the turn during this move and smacks into Magnuson and, and spins him off the track. So later stewards ruled that this was on Ricardo, uh, that this wasn't just a racing incident that uh, Ricardo, I think got a five second penalty for it. Mm hmm. My feeling watching the tape was that it just wasn't that black and white. Like this was this was one of those tough things where I don't think Magnuson necessarily did anything wrong, but also Magnuson had like an acre of tarmac available to him, right? That was that was the one thing that threw me off a little bit is should Ricardo have nosed in there like that? I don't know. Um but it did feel like Magnuson had like space to evade yeah and this is this is a a gray area that um i don't really know like where the limits are here because you are you're supposed to give other drivers space but when and this will come back actually at the end of this race uh once you have opened the door so to speak can you close it when do you do that? Right. And I, and I think so, the, you know, the, the argument was Ricardo, the reason he got into Magnuson was because he, lo- he locked up a little bit. But it, again, it wasn't like one of those um, just 
ridiculous dives down the inside where someone is trying to get a move done in a puff of blue white smoke uh you know with with the brakes totally seized like he locked up the way we see drivers lock up all the time when they're carrying just a little too much speed it was just one of those little like beats uh where he loses a little bit of adhesion and that costs him a little bit of uh his his turn in i just to me like for me it would have been a no call uh I just didn't see that Ricardo done anything that wrong. And Magnuson, as he often does, was probably turning in a little bit much, um, given where the two cars were positioned. Not necessarily anything untoward, but again, there was a lot of blacktop uh, out to his right, and Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything to Ricardo's left. Yeah. Um, Magnuson... Gets going again, but uh, Ricardo has to change his front wing. Um, and then, like you said, receive that five second penalty, which uh, I believe he must have served at his next pit stop. Uh, and then the next bit I have is uh, lap 21, the pit stop start. Uh, Hamilton comes in from second place, intending to undercut for Stappen. Uh, he goes on to soft tires from soft tires. So he's committing to a two t- a two-stop race because, of course, you have to use uh, multiple different compounds during uh, any given race, and then rejoins in sixth place. So Verstappen responds immediately on the next lap, not wanting to lose any time to Hamilton's new soft tires versus his own old ones. Uh, he pits uh, and does a 1.9 second stop. Do you want to tell us what happens next, Rob? Oh, it's so brutal. It's one of those <laughs> that like 1.9 seconds is so good. So good. And it was like perfect, right? It was gonna be it was gonna be nip and tuck no matter what, but 1.9, it seemed like he'd done it. And I had to back it up because what happened completely baffled me. It was like basically it was like like if Zeus had smoked uh Verstappen <laughs> in the pit lane, I would I could not have been more startled. Uh Verstappen is rolling down the pit lane, and then it's obstructed because there's one of those beams over uh, the pit lane too. And so at the critical moment, you couldn't even really see Verstappen's car. And then the next thing you hear the commentators, uh, you know, calling out and you see Verstappen is like braked hard because out of nowhere, Kubica has just come out of the pits unsafe release, basically right into his path. And I had to back it up because yeah, Kubica had come in at the same time and nobody is paying any attention to that stop. And he's down there at the end of the, he, he's just pulling in as Verstappen is starting to pull out and they just don't, they don't see him or they think they can beat Verstappen uh, out and he just pulls right out. Verstappen has to break hard and swerve to avoid making contact. And then he's sort of balked uh, coming onto the acceleration zone basically for, for rejoining. And in that time you see Hamilton go shooting past. Mm-hmm. And I am conditioned to this point to think, well, there goes the race. Yeah. Uh, And fortunately, that did not happen. Um, Part of that may have been that Hamilton was lucky to get past Verstappen there, but also he had pulled right up behind Leclerc and he had run out of clear track ahead of him. And so he was on he was on a tear uh, but it was at an end because now he had to get, now he had to get past this Ferrari. 
Right. Uh, Verstappen gets by Kubica quickly. Uh, Kubica, by the way, did earn a, a five-second time penalty for that move. Um, but you're right. Ahead of Hamilton on track is Leclerc, and both Hamilton and Verstappen uh, now have to contend with that. But they both get by him pretty quickly because he's on medium tires. Uh, he started on mediums because he was in the back. Uh, and then from there, we get a treat for Stappen battling Hamilton. They come around to the start-finish straight, and Verstappen behind has DRS. So he jukes to the inside. Hamilton makes a sharp defense, but Verstappen has all the pace advantage uh, as he has all weekend and gets by without too much trouble. However, on this track, there is then immediately another DRS zone. And so the guy you just passed now gets DRS on you. So Hamilton has it. Uh, Verstappen knows this, covers the very inside of this um, straight uh, coming up to another left-hander and then just deftly fades back to the racing line, uh, keeping Hamilton behind. Uh, Hamilton also was yelling something about a battery issue, I think. Yeah, so he was... um it was a weird dynamic on the radio this weekend, and this was the mm-hmm. first time I noticed it because he just sounded furious, um, and he was kind of berating his crew in a way I'm not usual used to he- hearing him. Uh, and what he was saying was, you need to let me know when I'm out of battery. He was sort of snarling that he felt he'd been left defenseless, I guess, okay, yeah. uh, because nobody had given him a heads up that his battery was down. That feels like... <sighs> This, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it feels weird. Like, the sheer number of times that drivers do not appreciate an update when they're in the middle of the cut and thrust of a duel is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And also, is the battery info displayed on the uh, on the steering wheel display? I feel like it is. Um, and that thing charges up and charges down so often that I don't know how much, like, I don't know how often... Uh, engineers are passing along battery status information. Uh, maybe there's something going on, but to me, it kind of felt like Hamilton being frustrated because honestly, his car was outclassed this weekend, and he was he was a sitting duck, and then it was just kind of transferring it onto. Damn! If only you bastards had told me about my battery, <laughs> I right. wouldn't have. <laughs> I would have gotten away with it. Yeah, it felt that way to me too. Uh, I, 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 again, I, I wish. And I feel like I've said this for years, but I wish we knew more about how the actual <clears throat> deployment of that battery stuff worked, uh, both from like just a, a physical, like what do they do in their cockpits to do it? I imagine it's it's not like the old overtake uh, button that they used to have, but more like a it's it's deployed on different engine maps. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a case where the. Um where the games are actually pretty much on the money. It used to be, yeah, there's sort of the push to pass or the, um, you know, you had a limited amount of charge to burn through uh, every, every lap. And now it's more like, because because now it's more like um, you just decide how much discharging is happening per lap mm-hmm. and you can decide how to balance it. Um it really is just more a question of yeah what your what your mappings are what your what your settings are uh, because like they were talking about this a bit I think uh, during qualifying but sometimes you see cars that are 
just w- like slowed way the hell down. And often that is because they're in recharge mode and they're basically defenseless for those laps because they are just running slower. They're not getting much uh, deployment from the battery and instead they're just harvesting like crazy. And so, you know, I, I think this is one of those cases where w- what probably would have caught Hamilton out was that he would have had to immediately hard cut into a recovery mode and could, you know what I mean? Like, because if you, once you once you take it all the way down, I think at that point you basically you're, you are a sitting duck. You have to re- recover fast. Um, you don't have the luxury of sort of running a slight deficit anymore. Yeah. Do you think they should show something like that on the graphics, or do you think that would just give away too much information, like what percentage of charge or something? Didn't they used to have a battery charger? Was that only for when Kurs was the? Um, the, the the like the ten seconds of boost per lap. I feel like I used to see an info display. Maybe I'm thinking yeah. of Formula E. Um, maybe, or maybe I'm thinking of push to pass and Indy. But I feel like I used to, there used to be a battery uh, status uh, piece of the interface, and now that stuff seems uh, seems to have got, kind of gotten concealed once the way the Urge system works became integrated with just engine mode settings. Yeah. So I think it would be I think it would be good, but yeah, it's probably not something the teams want out there because if we can see it and that information is up to date, then basically the whole game is given away, right? Like yeah. like literally there's no reason that you wouldn't have team engineers just watching the race live because the minute you see somebody has, oh, you know, hits yeah, he's recharging. Get and him. you can also see things like Oh, their charging efficiency is bad this week. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're yeah. So, no, I don't think we'll ever get information like that. Um, but but this felt like a case of Hamilton just got caught up in the fight, got caught out by uh, the state of his battery, and uh, was, was kind of furious. Didn't really matter though because he still came back, right? Like he still they go all the way around and. They come around the banking uh, at high speed, and Hamilton gets him on on lap forty three, right? Uh, I don't have that. Oh, um, sorry, sorry. The sorry. next thing, the next thing I have is uh, that they pit. Sorry, uh, yeah, lap twenty four. I think I think Hamilton recovered that position briefly, and then Vettel got it back. Vettel, uh, Verstappen. Okay, yeah. Uh, I just have. Um, yeah, Mercedes is and uh, Verstappen complaining about wind. Yeah, and then not a lot happens between then and 46, lap 46, except for Hamilton and Verstappen do pit again one lap apart, both go from soft to medium uh, and come out in the same order. Yeah. So lap 46, Botas starts attacking Leclerc for fifth place. And I say starts because this lasts for a while. Mm-hmm. Botas stays right up on the Claire, but cannot get anything done. Uh, it looks like he just doesn't have the speed. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and I can't tell if it's if it's following distance or the the speed differential just isn't there. Um, but obviously, what happens as this duel goes on certainly gives us cause to think there was something else at play, right? Um, which yeah, came first, or, right? Like, it, it, I think. I don't know if we heard his engineer telling him this or if it was just relayed by uh, the commentators, but I think his engineers were telling him to cool the car. And, you know, when you're 
close behind another car, you're getting turbulent air. It's not that nice, smooth, cool air that can come in and cool your engine. Um, it's, it's much less efficient at cooling. So if you're behind someone for a while, your car can overheat. And perhaps it's because of that that smoke starts coming out of Botas's car. Uh, on lap 52, he pulls over near a gap in the fence, and we get, at first, yellow flags, uh, which I thought this was funny. Verstappen claims that Hamilton didn't slow down for. Uh, and then uh, then we get a safety car. So initially it looked like, well, this is uh, easy to just reverse the car and, and put it behind the fence and we don't need a, a full safety car. But uh, this is from Autosport race director Michael Massey said, uh, Valtteri did a fantastic job where he stopped. They were trying to push the car back into the gap. Uh, which is why we went double yellow as we had marshals there. It was off track. They were trying to push the car, but the car got stuck on a bump. So actually we had to deploy the crane to move it out. And for me, as soon as the crane is deployed, that's it. Safety car. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And under the safety car here, your pit delta, the effective time that you lose by pitting is 11 seconds versus 22 seconds in a regular uh, green flag condition. Hamilton is told to pit opposite to Verstappen at this point. And Verstappen decides to pit going from mediums to softs with 17 laps to go. So Hamilton stays out. This means that Verstappen loses out to Hamilton, loses first place. Um, But thankfully for Verstappen, lapped cars are allowed to reshuffle to the back under the safety car. So when the restart happens, uh, Verstappen uh, doesn't have anyone in front of him but Hamilton. I think that's a gutsy call to give up first place to get on new tires. But I also think it's maybe your only call because if you don't do that, Lewis Hamilton now has fresh tires right behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though Verstappen has the pace advantage and Mercedes doesn't seem to be doing that great in compared to comparison to the other cars, I guess it is a toss up, but um, I think yeah, gutsy call either way. Uh, so on the restart, which happens, what is this, eight laps later on lap 60, the top six look like this. Hamilton in first, Verstappen second, Vettel third, Albon fourth, Leclerc fifth, Gasly in sixth. On the restart, Verstappen and Albon both get overtakes on the cars in front in the same corner. It's awesome. Uh, Albon jumps Vettel into third and Verstappen jumps Hamilton into first immediately. Uh, Vettel then comes under attack from his teammate Leclerc and has to do a lot of defending. Uh, and then we are treated to Does even he, more. Though? Uh, yeah, he, you're right. He doesn't have to. <laughs> he does end up doing a lot of defending. Uh, but yeah, uh, from there we get more wheel to wheel action with Hamilton on Verstappen, but Verstappen manages to to fight him off. Um, Albon, meanwhile, is chasing Hamilton and defending from Vettel, who in turn has Leclerc all over him. Uh, then Vettel mounts another attack on lap 64, but Albon uh, holds him off too. So then uh, a few laps later, Leclerc, still looking to get past Vettel, gets DRS and swoops up the inside for turn uh, at turn one for what looks like a pretty easy pass. However, this is the same thing that happened with Verstappen and Hamilton at the front of the race. Uh, Vettel gets DRS for the next zone and comes back, swinging to the outside of Leclerc. So 
you want to take this from here, Rob? Well, they end up uh, in kind of a drag race, right? It, it ends up sort of a side-by-side uh, chase down a straight. And Vettel is on the outside of the straight. And Leclerc is in the center of the track. And Vettel pulls ahead by maybe a nose. But, like, their their wheels are basically perfectly aligned. Uh, yeah. And Vettel starts coming over. And they touch, and it looks like a pretty light touch. It's not. It's it's not an egregious. It's not a bang. Yeah, it's not an indie style like uh, chrome horn horn type thing, <laughs> but they do touch, and it's catastrophic. Um, yeah. Immediately, uh, we can see that. Uh, God, I can't remember who showed the fatal. I think it was clear immediately that Vettel had a puncture. Well, Leclerc goes off first. He, I don't even think he turns. He just kind of skids yeah. off in a flurry of sparks. Because, yes, because first he appears to have a puncture, but then also it turns out his suspension just broke. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 either the hit or the combination of the hit and the uh, tire bursting, either was enough to break the suspension. Uh, so his car just goes straight off. And then Verstappen's uh, wheel... Has come completely on that all. Sorry, the two V names throw yeah. me off every time. V E T uh, and V E R. Yeah, and and so I constantly uh, screw that up. Apologies. Uh, but Vettel, his t- his left uh, rear has has burst, and is just doing that flail thing mm-hmm. of just like carving the car uh, into into strips. And so both the Ferraris have taken themselves out in a completely like this was an optional fight. We were talking last week about this kind of being a, the senioritis Grand Prix. Like there's not <laughs> that much at stake. And they went pretty hard at each other. Yeah. And like watching it back, there isn't a lot of room for Vettel on the outside, but Leclerc does leave him enough space. And I don't I don't know why Vettel moves over. It's not like it 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 almost I could believe if he said he didn't even mean to like they're so close that any here's my bet. Okay. So we see drivers do this all the time. The like you're in a you're in a drag race heading down a straight toward a turn. You start drifting over to bully the other guy off the line, but you do it slowly, mm-hmm. sort of like emerging lanes on the highway. The guy yeah. sees you coming over and slowly begins keeping distance and also drifting. But as you're running out of straight and begin hitting that turn, what he's done is seated the racing line, and now he's looking at a narrow turn and tree. He's going to have to bail out. Whereas if you go side by side, you both have a decent claim to the line. So I think Vettel is just trying to chase uh, Leclerc off the line and force him into a position where he has no choice but to seed the next corner. Um, But that relies on the guy both seeing that the thing is happening um, and then bailing out, like being willing to seed that position. Yes, Um, chicken. Yeah. And it didn't work. Yeah. The the stewards determined that both drivers, quote, had the opportunity to avoid or mitigate the incident and therefore that neither driver is predominantly at fault. The stewards therefore 
take no action. And I, I do agree with this. Uh, I think it is a, a racing incident. Um, Leclerc, you're right, could have bailed, but didn't. And Vettel could not have moved over, but did. Yeah. I mean, this you. was th- like, this was a 2020 incident. Like this, this was like, I feel like to a degree, I'm not always sure that Vettel is in complete control of his decision making during the heat of the moment. But <laughs> I do think there's also an element of these guys are testing each other. They know that they've got a good car. They know they're going to be getting into scraps on the track. And neither is willing. I think both have reason to fear the other guy is going to supersede them and kind of marginalize them within their own team. And so neither is going to yield those positions. Um, And in a way, because nothing is really left at stake uh, for this year, there's also no cooler heads element saying you guys both need to bring these cars home. Uh, and so to a degree, this was, this was a case where if there's ever a race where both these guys were going to like in that game of chicken, fling the wheel, the, fling the steering wheels out the side of the car, uh, <laughs> this is it. And so to me, this very much felt like a, uh, it very much felt like Leclerc and Vettel are continuing to position themselves around each other. Um, as I often do, I didn't like Vettel's body language after he just gets this, he does this thousand yard stare thing of like, <laughs> how the hell did this all go so wrong? He's standing there watching the cars get craned off, uh, craned off the track. And it's just weird to me that like every time something like this seems to happen, Vettel gets this expression on his face. That's like in a werewolf movie when the guy wakes up the next day and realizes what he's done. That is Vettel after every single one of these like hot headed blowups where he's like, damn again. <laughs> uh, we get a safety car for this. Cause there are two. I couldn't believe they restarted this race, but so not only do we have two Ferraris off the track, but apparently stroll went off and broke his suspension either at the same time or soon after the safety car was called. Um, So that has to be cleaned up too. And we have like four laps left. Um, As it runs on the track now, it's Verstappen in first, Albon in second, Gasly in third. Uh, I'm sorry. Verstappen is first, Hamilton second, Albon is third, and Gasly is fourth. Hamilton then pits, coming out behind Gasly. So it's Verstappen, Albon, Gasly, Hamilton now. And the commentators point out that um, the Botas safety car took way longer than four laps to clear. So Mercedes may have just pitted Hamilton off of the podium, uh, which would give us an all Honda podium, which would be amazing. Uh, Verstappen, Albon, Gasly. Uh, and they also pointed out the drivers on the radio. Some drivers were saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. And other ones were like, mm, we should probably not restart the race. There's too much debris on the track. <laughs> uh, by the way, at this point, Signs, who started in 20th place, has made it up to fifth somehow. Kid thankfully gets, for the kid has moves. He, yeah, he really does. Um, thankfully for Hamilton in this case, uh, the safety car it does not the race does not end behind the safety car. We do get a restart on lap 70 of the 71 lap race. Hamilton dispatches with Gasly pretty quickly, jumping into third, and then sets his sights on Albon. And as they come up to a tight right-hander, Albon swings a little wide up ahead. 
Hamilton, seeing this as an open door, dives to the inside, but Hamilton is on his way back in to hit the apex, and so he collides with Hamilton and spins off the track. Hamilton gets a little damage to his front wing, but continues on. So we were talking about Ricardo and Magnuson earlier. What do you think of this move? I mean, I think it was Hamilton. Like to me, this looked uh, this this looked over aggressive. Um, it, like this is what getting it ro- getting it wrong looks like. Um, so that was that that was my thing. I don't think, I don't think it was a bad move. Like I don't think it was egregious, but it was over ambitious. And uh, you know, it was it was pretty clear that there was nothing Albin could have done. I, I kind of disagreed this notion that he left it too wide for Hamilton. <laughs> Sure, I don't know that. I don't know that door looked as open to me as uh, the commentators were saying, or that Hamilton saw it as being. Like it was a tight corner, and he went in hard. I don't know that the door was swinging open. Um, yeah, there's like there's there's a gap. Yes, there is a gap for your car to go into, but you also know that that other car has to make this turn eventually. He's not just going to go off the track for you or disappear. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, so is Hamilton, really, right? Like, I mean, to skip to skip ahead, the end of this race, when, when uh, you know, the first thing he does in the post-race interview is, be, is put his hand up and basically be, it basically says, I got that wrong, I apologize. So, yeah, like... And actually, before that, he uh, there's footage from, I think, somebody else's car, but they park. Hamilton gets out and, like, goes to Albon and apologizes. Uh, before they even walk up, that's fair um, then. That's like I think I think Hamilton probably had the clearest, a very clear assessment then of what happened there, and I feel like uh, some of the commentators, um, you know, maybe were too quick to defend the decision to go in there. Um, but either way, yeah. So Hamilton, uh, he continues on, but he also in in this incident loses a place to the car behind who as i may remind everyone is pierre gasly so then for the last lap of this race we see lewis hamilton chasing down gasly uh who is no pushover and manages to keep hamilton at bay until the last corner where it then becomes a drag race to the finish line and by less than a car length pierre gasly keeps second place over Lewis Hamilton. Always liked that kid. Always <laughs> always thought he had the makings of a true contender in Formula One. Uh, fearlessly staring down Lewis Hamilton. Uh, what a champion. Can't believe he just needs to be spot. in a better car, you know. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 very funny to me that his fortunes well his fortunes couldn't have gotten worse. Um, but his fortunes seemed to tick up a great deal once he got out of the Red Bull pressure cooker and back to uh, Taro Rosso. Yeah, I saw him say some quote along the lines of, I I had forgotten uh, once I got back to Taro Rosso, I I had forgotten how much F1 is a team sport, which I thought was interesting. Huh. There's a lot of tea leaves you could read there. Certainly are. Um, But that is not all, Rob Zachney, because the stewards agreed with Hamilton's assessment of his accident and handed him a five-second time penalty, which, because of the close proximity of everyone due to the safety car, drops him to seventh place and vaults one Carlos Sainz Jr. to third place. May I remind you, 
Carlos Sainz Jr. started this race from last place. Good God. Yes. I also really, really liked it um, that Gasly went over and gave the Red Bull guys high fives while he was in the yeah in the pen after that. Um. So yeah, that was the that was the Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, yeah. I've got some. There's some illuminating uh, news articles that came out after the race. Uh, apparently, uh, in regards to that last pit stop that Hamilton made, um, he called it. Hamilton did, but uh, as uh, James Allison says to uh, in this quote from Autosport after the race, um, they gave him wrong information. Uh, Hamilton slowed down and was approaching the pit entry when engineer Pete Bonington twice repeated the message, let us know if you want tires, you will lose one place. After a pause, Hamilton initially said, you make the decision, followed by, I'll come in, I'll come in, just as he reached the pit entry. In reality, Hamilton lost two places to both Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly, uh, who got past him, and then when the track finally went green, he had only two laps in which to make use of his fresh tires. Um, yeah, James Allison said it was... Uh, Dumb and a rookie error. Well, that was his first time running uh, the race for Mercedes from like because uh, Wolf wasn't there. And That's true. So, like, we talked last week about this is kind of the thing that Wolf was doing was like, let's see how this crew can do without me. And it was interesting to me how the dynamic changed with him not being there. Uh, yeah, Hamilton was way more in their grill on the radio. And not to say that's that in itself isn't such a huge change, but they were giving in to him and they were more responding directly to what he was asking. Um, and it does make me wonder if having Wolf in there at a remove from both Bono and uh, and Allison, if that is. Uh, kind of necessary for keeping everyone on an even keel. Yeah. Um, I've got some quotes here from Hamilton and Albon on that, uh, that last lap incident uh, from Autosport. Uh, Albon says, of course he didn't mean to do it. I'm not angry at Lewis. Uh, reviewing it back, turn nine, I saw him in my mirrors. I thought he wasn't close enough to do the overtake, so I didn't defend it. Uh, I went in a little bit quick anyway, just to try and cover it. I saw he kind of went for it, but didn't feel at the time like he committed completely. It's one of those things where you go side by side like that at an angle. It's completely blind, so you kind of give space, but you don't really know where he is, and you just have to turn in and hope that there's no one there. We tagged, and that was kind of the incident. To be honest, I thought he wasn't going to overtake me there, uh, and that he was going to overtake me in turn one. Uh, he had the pace. Hamilton then says, uh, it's always a big question of when is the right time to try it. We only had a lap and a half to go. An opportunity came up. I was quicker through turn nine and I was in shooting distance. So I gave it a shot. Ultimately, in my mind, I'm trying to catch Max. It's highly unlikely, but that was the goal. I've got a penalty. I totally accept the blame. And I was coming from behind. Uh, you don't, you hardly don't ever see me do that collisions with anyone in hindsight. I could have waited to come across the line, but hindsight is always a great thing. And that was Brazil. Yeah. Anything else, Rob? Uh, nope, not anything about the race. All right, well, should we take it to the news then? Absolutely. Uh, okay. 
Well, not a lot going on in Formula One land. Uh, besides, I, I, I don't think we officially confirmed drivers for next year. Uh, Kvyat and Gasly will stay at Toro Rosso, uh, or Alpha Tori, as it will be called next year. Um, and uh, Alex Albon is staying for uh, Red Bull. Um, Hulkenberg is sounding more and more like he wants to try to pull an Esteban Ocon and sit out one year and come back. I'm not sure he has the the backing to do that. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, and it's looking more like uh, Nicholas Latifi will move up from Formula 2 into that spot that uh, Robert Kubica is vacating at Williams. Um, yeah. Just a thing that caught my eye is Ferrari summoning Vettel and Leclerc to, uh, to have a meet at Ferrari <laughs> HQ in Marinello. Uh, and it's interesting that they're once trying to downplay the notion that there's anything really wrong in their relationship between drivers. You had Autosport talking about, uh, you know, Bonato downplaying uh, the degree to which the drivers are going at each other. Uh, but then over at uh, race fans, you have Rankin and Colantine writing about, uh, you know, basically Bonato did, did say that this was a bad mistake with major consequences for the team that shouldn't have happened. And it feels like, uh, you know, you heard Croft and um, Brundle refer to the Weber-Vettel relationship and how mm-hmm. reminiscent this incident was of some of their clashes. And I'm inclined to agree. And I think Bonato has his hands full. Uh, this is yeah. this is going to be a tricky thing to manage. Um, I feel... I think he was really unfortunate that Russia played out the way it did because I feel at, I feel like with the Russian GP, he had engineered a situation where they were going to put the screws to Vettel really, really nicely for him, not for him, not like towing the line, but this, then his engine blew. And so the message went, wasn't passed along uh, because I think with race strategy, they were going to bury him. And that didn't happen. And so that situation continued to fester where he'd kind of been insubordinate. Uh, but then everyone sort of moves along and plays nice. Uh, and that all sort of does a mea culpa instead. And now we have this here at the end of the season. And it's really not a good time to have this happen because if you had these blowups like a few races ago, there's still enough season left to get everything back on an even keel. Abu Dhabi is the last race. It's, it's, you know, kind of a throwaway event at this point in the year. Uh, it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's the rap party. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, this is the sort of thing that's going to linger now in that driver relationship. And, uh, it's going to make for a really tricky, uh, team management problem next year because it goes beyond just how you manage the personalities. You may be at a situation where you are scared to have these guys next to each other on the track, like <laughs> position race position enough. One's complicated enough enough. Uh, it gets real dicey when you kind of don't want your drivers next to each other and you kind of don't want to have to arrange one of them going past the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I forgot to run down the uh, finishing order, so let's do that now. <clears throat> First place, Max Verstappen. Second place, Pierre Gasly. Third place, Carlos Sainz. In fourth, Kimi Raikkonen. And we've got Antonio Giovinazzi uh, in fifth place. It's got to be his best finish. Um, Danny Rick in sixth. Lewis Hamilton uh, in seventh after his five-second time penalty. Lando <clears throat> Norris comes home in eighth. Then uh, Sergio Perez and Danny Kvyat gets the final point. Behind them, Kevin Magnussen, George Russell in 12th, just shy of his his first points. Uh, Roman Grosjean in 13th. Alex Albon uh, finished the race in 14th place. Nico Hulkenberg in 15th because he apparently received a five-place uh, post-race time penalty for overtaking under safety car conditions. Um, then we got Robert Kubica in 16th, and then the DNFs, Fettel, Leclerc, Stroll, and Botas. Uh, driver standings, Lewis Hamilton on top, of course. Um, Valtteri Botas in second with 314. Uh, Max Verstappen's got 260. Charles Leclerc with 249. Sebastian Vettel with 230. Pierre Gasly now tied with Carlos Sainz, both at 95 points in sixth place. Alex Albon's got 84. Danny Rick's got 54. Sergio Perez in 10th place with 46. Landon Norris right behind with 45. Kimi Raikkonen's got 43. Nico Hulkenberg with 37. Danny Kvyat with 35. Lance Stroll's got 21. Kevin Magnussen has 20 still. Antonio Giovinazzi moves up with 14 points. Uh, Roman Grosjean is in 18th place with 8 points. Robert Kubica with 1. And George Russell with 0. Mercedes still on top, uh, of course, having clinched the Constructors' Championship with 701 points. Ferrari has 479. Red Bull's got 391. McLaren with 140. Renault's got 91. Uh, Scuderia Toro Rosso with 83. Very now much closer to uh, 5th place Renault. Uh, Racing Point has 67. Alfa Romeo's got 57. Haas, Haas and team, 28 points. And Williams has won. Uh, rest of the news here. The Macau Grand Prix happened. I haven't watched the the final race. I watched the qualifying race. So I'm not going to say what happened because I don't know. But I will link in the show notes uh, the uh, the full races if in case you want to go back and watch them on demand. Um, in other racing series, the World Endurance Championship, Rob, has another team to enter in the future. Hujo is back, baby. Yeah. Finally. Like, it's exciting. They were they had a really good rivalry. Um, they were probably they probably tried to push Audi farther than anyone else did uh during Audi's run of uh dominance in WEC. And they had to bail out because one, nobody was nobody was beating that Audi program. Um I think Audi only Law like Audi only was knocked off the top when they basically got bored of winning and left. I don't think Toyota actually came in and beat them. I think Toyota came in and filled the void. But the issue was that entire Le Mans prototype class, as we discussed, was becoming just so ridiculously expensive that there was one serious entrant per year, basically. And then I think there was like rebellion racing clawing their way in there uh, and running it on a shoestring. And it just wasn't. It was no longer a place where you were seeing really exciting dynamic competition between teams. This entire shift to WEC regulations and moving away from the prototype class to uh, 
to to opening up a hypercar uh, series has helped bring more people into into the series. Pujar coming yeah. back is a sign that strategy is succeeding. Right, so they'll be uh, joining in the 2022 season. Um, I really want to see what those cars look like. Uh, elsewhere in racing, MotoGP, we go now to Lorenzo announcing his retirement. Jorge Lorenzo, who's been in the league for a long, long time. Um, he's a big part of that uh, tremendous MotoGP documentary, Hitting the Apex. Um, has not really found his footing for the last few years. He went to uh, Honda for the 2019 season to partner Mark Marquez, who's just been cleaning up in the past few years, uh, but wasn't able to get anything going and was injured, I think, um, uh, maybe two-thirds of the way through the season, <clears throat> Lorenzo was. So he's out. Um, Mark Marquez's brother, Alex, is in. So two brothers uh, will be racing together on the same team, for the first time in MotoGP history next year. Uh, that'll be fun. You watch any MotoGP this year? Not much, no. I just I keep the lightest of lightest of tabs on it. Um, it is, like, I, I find it incredibly fun to watch, but also I kind of can't watch it. It's so, it, it, is, it is so death-defying. Oh, it's, um, I love it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great. Um... Let's see. Fantasy standings for the Brazilian Grand Prix. Uh, by the way, if you'd like to join our Fantasy League, you can do so uh, with the link in the show notes. We've got in fifth place, uh, Chazai. In fourth place, Fantasy Fun. Uh, number three, Your Verstappen, My Heart. Number two, Paladin. And number one for the Brazilian Grand Prix, White Yeti Racing International, brought to you by Rich Energy. I can't even... I can't even follow it anymore. Nope. Uh, fifth place overall standings in fifth place. G's Mercedes team. Uh, I'm sorry. G's Mercedes driver team hedged by Ferrari. Uh, just saying your whole strategy right there in your team name. Uh, St. Jovese racing team is in fourth. Uh, Jacked up racing is in third. Number two, boy, to the future part three. And then number one, still holding it down. Rich Volt F1 energy team. Parentheses, we heart stewards. Should we dig into some emails, Rob? Let's do it. Uh, All right. You can email us at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or, to, uh, or go to f1.cool slash emails. Uh, you want to take this first one? Yeah, we got one here from Anthony. Uh, Anthony writes, Dear friends, F1's traveling circus is basically the original version of the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise. You have 20 to 30 drivers all vying for different versions of a similar thing. Race wins, championship, and F1 seat, a sim seat. But are clearly divided into those that have a shot at the Bachelorette, Bachelor or Bachelorette's heart, top teams, a future in the franchise, best of the rest, up-and-coming drivers, fading champs, and those who don't have enough self-awareness to realize they actually aren't really at the dance. <laughs> this, by the way, is the email that Danny alluded to. Yeah. Uh, last week, and we got so many people saying, like, well, you should read that email. Now we're reading the email. Other thoughts, similarities. Crofty may be just like Chris Harrison. You guys might have a better reference. Uh, but here's some Bachelor phrases that would fit Formula One. He's here for the right reasons. Lewis Hamilton, Lando Norris. He's not here for the right reasons. Lance Stroll. Will you accept this rose? 
Anyone who gets a seat. <laughs> we need to talk. Ghastly demotion. Same as Bachelorette telling a contestant she's starting to see the possibility of maybe falling for them and then cutting them one hour later on national TV. The drunk guy at the pool parties? Kimi. I think Kimi has actually been a drunk guy at the pool party. <laughs> I am pretty sure that is one of the reasons he was, encur- he was sort of lightly encouraged to leave Ferrari the first time around. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, th- like, I don't know. I stopped following the sport as closely during that era um, because I was at college and it was just becoming logistically impossible. I remember at one point my parents were pointing a Skype web a webcam at their TV screen and I was watching races via Skype. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, and like it, so that was that was tough. Let me tell you. Um, but if memory serves, there were stories that like Kimi was incredibly talented but also had a reputation for being uh, a bit of a party animal at the time and that was not playing well at ferrari which was coming off of years of basically the really sort of conservative styles of um schumacher and rubens and uh ross braun right like because who uh the ulsterman uh eddie irvine yeah eddie irvine uh, was similarly let go from Ferrari because they felt like there was a lack of seriousness. So I could see Kimi being the drunk guy at the pool party. Absolutely. Uh, the villain changes weekly, but mostly Magnuson. Okay. The guy who looks like and talks like he should have a shot, but just doesn't have any chemistry with the Bachelorette. Rest of the guys are even a houseplant. Grosjean. <laughs> I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win. Every driver thinks this is them, but it's really just Max. Wow. Okay. The token international guy that would dominate this thing if it was built to suit him, but the rules are just different for dating 20 people all at once in this country. Valtteri. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. The guy who keeps the relationship going, but everyone else sees him for the childlike tantrums he throws. Leclerc. Ooh, wow. Anthony mm. has a editorial position. And <laughs> I'm increasingly coming around to this position. I can see that. <laughs> I can't place Gunther Steiner. But he may just be the producer who knows how all this shit works and is actually just playing everyone to his benefit, which is very funny <laughs> to think about. Probably going to be the next Bachelor, George Russell. Ooh, yeah. I like it. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, the next, this next one comes in from Doug in Tokyo, who says, Dear Danny, Drew, and Rob, listening to the most recent episode, the pre-Brazil, and the question of circuit grades and eligibility came up. Um, the, uh, yeah, we were wondering what it takes for a racetrack to be approved for F1 running. Uh, Doug says the FIA grades tracks, judging their features and safety and providing a rating from there. Details can be found here. And then he links to FIA.com slash circuit safety, uh, in order to be included as a formula one circuit for races for, or for most tests, the circuits must be grade one classified, See Jerez, Valencia, Inoki, and Mugello as major circuits which have not hosted F1 but have a grade 1 rating. Uh, for the most part, this means it's built to top standards in features and in safety design. Doug later notes that uh, the big issue here is runoffs. F1 cars travel at faster speeds, so uh, they need more space to slow down. Um, so often tracks have to be retrofitted to uh, accommodate that. Uh, note that most of the tracks used by the World Endurance Championship are also grade 1 with the exceptions of Sebring and Le Mans. 
Also note that Fiorano, Ferrari's short test track, is also grade one, which allowed them to test there uh, pretty routinely. The Indianapolis Grand Prix circuit is still ranked as a grade one circuit. If Roger Penske were to cut the check tomorrow, they could technically run the race based on that grading. Most of the checks used by IMSA and IndyCar are in, the, in the U.S. are grade two. Some could be improved to F1 standards, but others would struggle. Watkins Glen, Laguna Seca, and Road America all would struggle to meet the runoff requirements. The cynical amongst uh, racing fans would also suggest these circuits lack the pure spending to ensure they would be given a, a grade one rating. Hope that helps. Uh, all the best, Doug, in Tokyo. Thank you, Doug. I will link uh, that uh, link in the show notes in case you want to download all kinds of uh, technical PDFs. Next one comes from Ray. Hello, Shift F1. I am new to Formula One starting since August and have watched all of the races thus far. Thoroughly enjoyed them all. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I find odd hours of race times fit my schedule. I'm also a graffiti artist, which requires me to be up super early and awake in the late evenings. Atta- I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Attached is a piece I painted in Austin inspired by the Mercedes car colors this past race. <clears throat> I have a few more sketched out and plan to coordinate the colors of each team in the near future. I got a chance to see the race with my daughter, and she has now become a fan as well. It was our first F1 race, and I decided to make it a yearly tradition. Do you have any recommendations for the best seat, steering wheel, pedal uh, sets to use for the PS4? I'm looking forward to using one myself and to teach my daughter how to drive. Thank you for the great podcast. I listen to every episode and found the primer very useful. Uh, so the place to start is uh, with the current Logitech. Uh, let me pull it up. Because they, they recently sunset their old one. I can't remember if that was the G29 uh, they, they sunset or if the G29 is the new one. Um, but... Yeah, I think the G I think the G29 is what you want. Uh that's a very good force feedback wheel. It's got a not necessary for Formula 1 sim racing, but it does have a uh clutch foot pedal. Um the pedals are steel plate. They're pretty high resistance. Uh so you don't get any of the looseness you might feel in like your arcade racing game setups where the pedals just have no resistance whatsoever. They feel pretty good. Uh, the wheels pretty high quality. The force feedback is pretty strong. Uh, I haven't noticed any calibration drift, which can be an issue with cheaper, um, with, with cheaper force feedback wheels. And, um, certainly was an issue with Logitech force feedback wheels two or three generations ago. Uh, but yeah, I think it's the G29. that is the PS4 one. I think there might be a different model, uh, that is Xbox compatible, which I think might have a different series number. But I think the G29 is the PS4 one. It has the correct logo on it, so that's that's the way to tell them apart. Uh, and both are compatible with the PC. Uh, as for racing seat, I mean, I that is something I haven't looked into too much uh, because that is not a commitment I am willing to make. Uh, the, the entire mounting, uh, mounting things into a racing seat. Um, I think for starting out the place to, the the place to start is have a good desk set up where you can set up your, uh, wheel and, uh, pedals. If you have hardwood floors or a tile floor, you probably want some kind of, uh, carpet or, uh, like rubber matting. 
because you don't want the foot pedals skittering around as you use them. And this definitely happened. The G29 is stiff enough that in my office chair, when I mash on the, uh, when, on the brake pedal, the resistance is high enough that it just rolls my chair back. So hmm. I had to get uh, I had to get wheel chocks for my uh, for my for for my chair, and uh, that was a pretty decent compromise. I uh, I found this thing a while ago called the Wheel Stand Pro. Um, I haven't bought it, but it would be the thing that I would buy to be able to use uh, pedals in a wheel on my couch. It's basically a uh, it's hard to describe, but it's like just a, a, a series of metal tubes oh, that yeah. you would just, it's it actually, it looks like it folds up too. So you could probably put it under your couch too, um, where you would put the, uh, pedals on it and then bolt your steering wheel to the top of the armature and then just kind of pull it up to you yeah. and play it that way. So, uh, it's 150 bucks uh, on Amazon. So that maybe, uh, if, uh, if you didn't want to get a race seat, anyone else out there, um, because those are typically more expensive in like the, yeah, think, and like, they just at that point you're creating so. like a purpose built space in your house, yeah, which is just which a different I, level of commitment. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> that's VJ Malia. Uh, yes, like money. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, I think the next one. Yeah, you get the yeah. next one. Okay. Uh, Matthew says, "Hey y'all. First off, thanks for recording great pods. Thank you, Matthew." Uh, after listening to Rob at Waypoint, I started listening here, and as a brand new F1 fan, the podcast helped me get up to speed quickly. Awesome. That's what we love to hear. Uh, my actual question concerns Valtteri Bottas's retirement from the Brazilian Grand Prix due to engine failure. Bottas left his car in a reasonable location. No one could argue he didn't make an attempt to park uh, to safely park the car, but it was still exposed enough that the full safety car was deployed in a situation where his teammate would presumably welcome one. When a driver needs to retire the car and has some discretion concerning where to safely stop the car, is there any expectation from the team or teammates to make the most advantageous choice for current race conditions and tactics? Uh, do teams ever give instructions on where to stop the car? And if so, are those instructions ever tactically motivated? Obviously, the first concern is driver safety, and in many situations, even if the driver has control of the vehicle, there are many other reasons they may not retire the car in the manner most beneficial to their teammate. They may have only one safe option to position the car for retrieval. They may not have correct uh, current information on their teammate's position or race strategy. They may not be in a mental or emotional state to consider the fortunes of the rival whose car is currently working. They may wish their teammate slash rival ill fortune, etc. Still, I'm wondering whether this ever occurs or if there are any notable instances where the placement of a retired vehicle meaningfully impacted a race. Thanks and keep up the great potting. Matthew, I guess it's a really good question. I think the the most egregious example of this <laughs> is uh, Singapore. What year was 2008? Yeah, something? the Nelson PK Jr. Uh, yes. crash gate yep where um he intentionally crashed his car uh on orders from the team principal uh so that a safety car came out and handed the race win to fernando alonso um who said that he had no knowledge of that uh i think the this is something that would come if it if it looked fishy, this is something that would certainly come under scrutiny by the stewards, uh, and they could certainly be um, issued a penalty or a fine uh, for that. Um, I imagine 
that there are, you know, ahead of the race given specific instructions saying, if you have a problem here, you go here. If you have a problem here, you go here. Uh, and you will sometimes hear the race engineers say, pull over to a safe spot. Um, but sometimes your car just loses all drive and you have no choice but to just pull over wherever you are. Um, and there are also considerations about, you know, if there's a problem with your engine and there's smoke billowing out, you want to stop it as soon as you can so that more harm does not come to the engine, which can be very expensive. So it's kind of like a toss up, uh, I think with all that stuff. And it's a, a lot of potential gray areas, but, um, I think it's also tough <laughs> with the exception of something like Crashgate, tough to anticipate from a, uh, a strategic or tactical decision-making standpoint. So I think it would be tough, um, to, uh, to you know put it in your your own favor yeah like i think we've seen a few like for instance speaking of russia right um that was a case where i think if vettel had positioned the car you know just like a few dozen meters like earlier on the track like if he bailed out sooner or later it would have been less of a disaster for ferrari but just the way it shook out um, is it maximally inconvenienced the team. And he might have, and if he'd been more heads up, maybe he could have found a way to have that actually sort of break in the team's favor. But these things happen so quickly um, that like Crashgate's instructed because it required so much advanced coordination and it required unique a unique set of track circumstances. Uh, here... In mo- like in modern F one, it feels like full course cautions and safety cars and virtual safety cars make it so that more and more of these incidents create those exact ramifications, regardless of their severity. So the notion that you can just stage one or that you can have one and then take it, have it happen organically, but somehow make it work in your team's favor. Uh, it's just, it's really hard to pull off and the odds of that, the odds of the field being reshuffled by a later incident, as we saw happen, what, twice at this most recent race suggests how, uh, difficult it is for even experienced drivers to control for what the ripple effects of the disabling of their car is going to have. Yeah, like you could try to do something and end up uh, causing even more yeah. harm. Uh, another good example of this, uh, Nico Rosberg going, locking up and going off at um, uh, in Monaco, causing yellow flags and botching Lewis Hamilton's lap. <laughs> uh, all right, that is it for emails. Uh, ShiftF1podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. You can also hit us up on Twitter at ShiftF1podcast where we... Uh, uh try to i i let me know what you think about this rob i i don't tend to retweet stuff about the race that has just happened yeah in like the the most in within like a 24-hour period what do you think of that i agree okay infuriates Um, me when like a peter a peter windsor tweet pops up in my feed and like i haven't seen the race yet because mm-hmm. it's DVR'd or I slept and like I just check my phone after my alarm goes off and like boom, 
there's the F1 results. Yeah. Oh, those people who post the just like the the top ten results, uh, just like out of context, just top ten on Twitter. Yeah. Like, thank you for that public service. There's no other right. way I could have gotten that information <laughs> than by you dumping it into my feed. I was uh, acting like they're a reporter at the World Series in 1929 or something. Like, come on. <laughs> Uh, Google can be really bad about this too. Like yeah. if it detects that you, Oh, you like formula one, here are the results of the race. Thanks. Yeah. I think uh, I had to tell Google, like I'm not interested in any sports because right. I just don't. Cause it, it, cause it does do that thing where it's like, you want to know who won this game. Right. And it's like, no, I was actually trying to enjoy a night out with my family and I was going to watch it when I got home. <laughs> uh, but thanks. So yeah, I know. I think, the proper etiquette for, especially for a global sport like F1, is to give people like their day, day and a half to like catch up. Yeah, I agree. Um, you can follow us uh, personally on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney and at Danny O'Dwyer. That is us around the internet. But let's take it for a race around the world, shall we? We got only two racing series is happening this weekend. Uh, Formula E kicks off their round one and round two happen uh, on uh, Friday and Saturday. Um, at least uh, in U.S. times, they are racing in Adiria, Saudi Arabia. Mm hmm. Uh, we've also got round 15 of the Supercars Championship. Uh, it's the Coates Hire Newcastle 500 at the Newcastle Street Circuit in Newcastle, uh, Australia. So uh, that's all we got. Got, a, got a, another week break, and then we'll come back um, on, uh, let's see, the weekend of December 1st for the final. Formula One race, um, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at Yas Marina. Um, yeah. Anything else, Rob? We, uh, I don't, I don't think anything can top, uh, I don't think, well, I don't think Yas Marina can top Brazil, but, um, looking forward to sending out Formula One. I'm just here for more drama. Yeah. Like, I mean, who cares? Like the greatest gift Formula One could give me is that there's just another bruising, gruesome duel between Vettel and Leclerc. Yeah. And, like, just the season ends with those two just, like, marching off to their se- to, to their separate trailers and not speaking and doors being shut in camera spaces. And it's, like, hard cut to black. F1 2019 is a wrap on the next <laughs> season. That's my hope. Because I'm here for the drama. Because it is The Bachelor. It really is. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>